0: And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to John's Gospel, chapter 15. John, chapter 15. I was absolutely awesome. I was just great. Any girl would be lucky to end up with a treasure like me. Or so I thought. And then I got married. And there is something about the experience of marriage where you begin bit by bit to learn the truth about yourself. And in the months after marriage, uh, in that first year of marriage, I began to learn that I wasn't awesome. And you're thinking it took you that long to learn that you were an awesome deemer. I figured that out in five minutes after meeting you. But I'm hard-headed. But but I began to learn with a horrifyingly increasing clarity that I was self-centered and unloving. Now I was a Christian when I got married but but there was more mess, much more mess that God needed to clean up in me, sinful propensities that needed to be exposed so that they could be rooted out and dealt with, and it was very painful to discover in those first couple of years of marriage that I was a real jerk. It was probably even more painful for Dana being on the receiving end of my stupidity. By the way, we're uh, we're about 3 months away from our 20 year anniversary praise God, for a patient and godly woman. And I've learned that marriage is great for many, many things, but what I didn't know before I was married is that marriage is also a powerful pruning tool in the hands of a loving father to shape his children. And all God's married people said, amen. And God's pruning work in our lives… Uh, can be very difficult to experience. Uh, it can even be painful. But everyone who is a Christian should expect it. It's actually part of the normal Christian life. But such divine pruning is not meant to be a needless burden, but a loving blessing. Let's have that in mind as we look at our text today. So I'm going to have you stand one more time as we read together the words of our great God and Savior. We, we stand at Harbin's Church out of reverence and respect for the Word of God, recognizing this is not just the words of of mere men. This is not fables or fairy tales or anything like that. This is a direct revelation from God to you. John chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1 and read on down through verse 5. Your Lord and Master says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that Your holy and inspired Word would do what Your holy and inspired Word does, which is to cut and heal, to expose and bring comfort, and to satisfy the soul. Father, do Your work in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you missed last week, we started a little discussion about gardening. We've been talking about how to have a fruitful life. Uh, That's something that we all want to have. We don't want to waste our lives. We want to have a purpose, and we want to fulfill that purpose. We have this drive within us. Even unbelievers do. We have this drive within us to have a fruitful life and even to bear fruit that lasts. But what does having a fruitful life really look like, and how do we experience it? Well, we began to look at that last week as we started to unpack Jesus' incredible statement in verse 1 where He says, I am the true vine. Now, time and again, Old Testament, the Old Testament describes Israel as a vine, and more often than not, it's a, a vine that doesn't bear any fruit or it bears rotten fruit. In Isaiah chapter 5, God says of Israel, when I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And we're told a little later on that God looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. The fruit God sought in the people were inner qualities that reflect the very nature of God who is righteous and who is just. In essence, He's looking for His very life and character expressed through the people, and He didn't see it, and He brought judgment. And it's against the backdrop of that sort of imagery that makes Jesus' claim to be the true vine all the more powerful. Where Israel had failed and fallen short, Jesus had succeeded. Only Jesus was able to fully and perfectly bear the righteous fruit that God was seeking. Only He perfectly reflected all the qualities and characteristics of the Father. Indeed, in the very last chapter we were in, in chapter 14, Jesus actually says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And the incredible thing we learn here in John 15 is that Jesus does not intend to bear fruit that is pleasing to God by Himself. He intends to bear fruit through you. And the kind of fruit that God looks for now is no different than what He looked for with Israel. God is looking for His very life to be expressed and reflected in His people. And in the New Testament, uh, Galatians chapter 5 probably contains the, the most uh, uh, famous description of the kind of fruit that God seeks. And so God says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the things that God looks for in our lives. Those are the things that you want in your own life. And we should recognize that just like uh, with Old Testament Israel, we can't bear fruit whatsoever detached from the life of God in us. Just like that that branch that is not receiving life, giving nourishment from the vine can't bring forth good fruit, so it is with us. It's impossible for you and I to bear any kind of good fruit on our own because we are all sinners by nature. Our hearts are corrupt, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear a a bad fruit, neither can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So there's no way that we can live a fruitful life on our own, which is precisely why Jesus does not say, I'm the true vine, and you guys be vines just like me, and good luck with that. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says something quite different. Look what he says at verse 5 in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches— Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. It is, it is only through the man that bore the perfect fruit of righteousness in his own life, only through our connection with Jesus that you and I can have any hope of bearing fruit in our own lives. And the only way that you and I can be connected to the vine in an intimate and meaningful way is through faith in Jesus. When we placed our trust in Christ's death on the cross as the payment provided for our sins, when when we, in an act of faith, give up our old, dead, fruitless life, surrendering our lives to Him, letting go of false vines that we were looking for life in, and Jesus becomes the center of our lives instead, it is that faith that connects us to Jesus that grafts us into the true vine, if you will. And then at that point, we are now positioned to receive the life of Jesus, and his life flows from him into us, and only then can we bear fruit, as the life of the vine flows into the branches, and and then his life then can be lived out in us, as the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2: I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we've got the vine. That's Jesus. We have branches. That's His disciples. That's you, church. But there's one more piece of this metaphor that we need. Look at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Literally, in the the Greek, you can translate that, my Father is the gardener. And in verse 2, Jesus describes the role of His Father in tending the vine with the purpose that the vine will yield the maximum amount of fruits. And one of the things the vine dresser does is remove the fruitless branches. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. Now, last week, we identified these fruitless branches as unbelievers who will be taken away and judged by God. And in the immediate context of John 15, we actually see a vivid example of this in Judas Iscariot, as that very night before the very eyes of the disciples, Judas, the fruitless branch, was sent away into the night to betray Jesus and receive His eternal reward in hell. But if unbelievers are fruitless, we also learn in John 15 that every believer bears fruit therefore, the kind of qualities expressed in the life of Jesus, again, things like love and and joy and and peace and gentleness and so on, those kinds of qualities are going to inevitably express themselves in the life of every Christian who is connected to the vine, but not perfectly. As a matter of fact, uh, you will see God's fruit to greater or lesser degrees depending on the person, depending on the branch. There are no perfect branches in this room. There's no such thing as... Perfect, a perfect Christian. But guess what? There's also no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There's no such thing as somebody coming, genuinely coming to Jesus and being saved by Him, and then there being no change in that person's life whatsoever. Friends, that is impossible. The Bible knows nothing of that. That's why the Apostle John writes later on in the book of 1 John No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, John is not saying that Christians are perfect because he writes a little earlier in the same book that if you say you have no sin, you're lying. Instead, his point is that if someone is genuinely born again and Christ is living in them, then their lives will be inevitably marked by Christ's likeness. The overall trajectory of their lives is different now than it was before they were saved. John says by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He's saying there's going to be a difference, or to put it another way, there's going to be fruits. Indeed, friends, fruit-bearing is one of the main reasons for your existence. In fact, going back to John 15, you can look down at verse 16, and Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus did not simply save you so that you can enjoy heaven later. His purpose in salvation is that your life be fruitful and productive for God right now, glorifying God. And Jesus says two things are going to happen uh, that result in a fruitful life. Two things happen that result in a fruitful life. And one of those things has to do with God's role, and another has to do with your role. And this week, we're going to focus on God's role in fruit-bearing. Again, Jesus says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Already you are clean, disciples, through the Word. You have heard and you have believed, so you don't have to worry about being one of those branches that's going to be thrown into the fire and burn. You're already connected to the vine as a fruit-bearing branch. But, back up to verse 2, what does the vine dresser do with every fruit-bearing branch? Does he leave it alone? No. He prunes it. To help the branch bear maximum fruits, and that might scare some of you, especially if you think harder about this, in light of the metaphor. grapevines require aggressive pruning. and the vine dresser will, will pinch sprouts, he 'll pull away the, the suckers and the shoots, he 'll aggressively cut back the vine. And the idea in pruning is to remove all those things that would uh, sap the nourishment and life from the plant, inhibiting its growth. And so the vine dresser comes along and he cuts those things away, washing and cleansing in such a way to bring forth maximum fruit. And to the uninitiated, to the to the untrained eye, that looks really bad. In fact, it looks harsh. Someone's coming in and, and, and doing all this, this pruning. He's got this knife, and he's just cutting everything back, and, and it looks like a waste. It looks like they're just killing the vine and ruining everything. But when a master gardener is at work, cutting away everything detrimental to the well-being of the plant, the end result is wonderful, abundant fruit and a plant that is healthy and strong. And Jesus compares this process to the Father's pruning work of our own spiritual lives. And so, God will come in and strip away things that are detrimental to our spiritual growth and health, things that will inhibit the growth of spiritual fruits. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you already know that one of the main ways that God prunes is through trial and adversity and pain, right? You know that. Trial and difficulty weans us off the world. It increases our sense of dependence on God. It roots out our pride and self-sufficiency and drives us to our knees with Bibles open. And so God will lovingly take the pruning knife to our bad habits. He will bring His pruning work to bear on our prayerlessness. I, I know that in my own life, God has dealt with my own prayerlessness by allowing me to go through some very difficult and painful situations, and guess what happens when I go through those trials? Lo and behold, I start praying. Isn't it funny how it works that way? God may prune us in the areas of our priorities and and, and things that we regard as so important and valuable. He may even strip away certain comforts and relationships uh, that might hinder our faith. Earlier, I mentioned how God can use good things like marriage to prune us. Well, having babies takes that pruning up to the next level as you stand in a room at 3 a.m. on two hours of sleep with a screaming, colicky kid who will not stop. And you begin to learn how much you lack patience and love and selflessness. God isn't being mean to you in that experience. God instead will use that to build those things into you, in, in, into you the, the kind of fruit that you so desperately need. You see, God can use good things like marriage and family, or bad things like persecution or sickness or difficult people or even the consequences of our own sins. God uses all of these things to shape us and position us to bear maximum fruit for Him. And only a good and perfect vine dresser knows how best to tend the vine. And and folks, that's where trust comes in, right? Uh, Big-time trust. Because sometimes I think I'm a better vine dresser than God. Uh, Sometimes I think I know best how I should be pruned. No, God, knife doesn't go there, it goes there. Or no knife at all. Thank you very much. To the untrained eye, to the new and inexperienced Christian, and really to all of us to one degree or another, the pruning work of God can seem very drastic, very senseless, even harsh and cruel and unnecessary. There can be times where we wonder, are you trying to kill me, God? And in those moments, we question the skill and the wisdom of the vine dresser. And yet, friends, the knife of the vine dresser comes not to destroy, but to cut back and cut away all of those things in your life and in my life that are preventing you and me from fully blossoming into something beautiful. Do you know that that's God's will for each and every one of you, that that you blossom into something beautiful? That's His plan we quote Romans 8.28 a lot, don't we? We, we love that verse that, that says, God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But a lot of times, we stop there and we don't read on to discover what that purpose is. What, what's, a, what's that good thing that God has for you that He's working all things together to accomplish on your behalf? What's the good? You keep reading and you will see Paul writes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the good. You see, God plans for you to blossom into something beautiful and lovely, and there is nothing in the universe that is more beautiful and lovely than Jesus. And there's nothing more good for you and for me than for us to be like Jesus. And so, another phrase for fruit-bearing could be Christ's conformity. And what Paul's telling us in Romans 8 is that God is bringing all things to bear, working all things together in your life towards that end, towards that goal, that purpose, that you would be conformed to the image of Christ and bear much fruit. Now, hear this, Harbins. This is so important to get. God is is only allowing things in your life that serve that greater glorious end. And he is using all of those things, both the good things that happen to you and the bad things. He is carefully and skillfully using all of those things to bring you closer to Christ's conformity. And yes, sometimes the pruning hurts. And sometimes the pruning involves pain. The the psalmist says something amazing in Psalm 119. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Do you hear what he's saying? What, What he's acknowledging there? He's saying that if I was not afflicted, if God did not allow that pain into my life, I would have kept going astray. Now, we don't know for sure who wrote Psalm 119. Some say David, some say Daniel. Uh, Both of these were godly men, men after God's own heart. They were already bearing fruit in their lives. But Jesus says every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruits. Now, if God didn't love the psalmist, God would have allowed him to stay comfortable and bring forth limited fruit. But God loved him and wanted him to bear even more fruit and so out came the pruning blade of affliction. And so the psalmist says, you know what? That affliction, it was painful. But guess what? On the other side of the, of the affliction of, of the pruning, I'm in a better place now than I was before. Now I am more faithful in keeping Your Word and bearing more fruit. Indeed, that same psalmist a few verses down, says this. This is, this is amazing. He says, you ever talk this way? He says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, as you think about God's pruning work in your own life, I want you to be careful. Because often when God allows great difficulty and pain into our lives, we tend to think of God negatively negatively that he is against us, or that he is out to get us, or uh, that that he's on our case for a specific sin. Be very careful about that. Well, something bad's happening, I must have done something wrong, and God's getting me for it. I hear that kind of stuff all the time from Christians. Be careful. First of all, whatever's happening to you, it's never wrath for sin. Do you know that? Because if you're in Christ... He bore God's wrath for all of your sins already. So get that thinking out of your head. Secondly, while I do agree that sometimes the Lord will discipline us in a specific response to specific sins, that's not always the case. Let's look at some biblical examples to get a more robust and and complete understanding of God's good pruning. And so we see, for example, in um, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice that there's nothing in that verse about sin. You, You did something wrong. Instead, what we see here is that God is permitting various trials into the believer's life for a particular end, and so we should rejoice. He's not saying rejoice because of the pain. That would be sadistic, right? No, the reason we count it all joy when we meet trials is because of what God will do for us in and through the trial. We can be confident that our suffering is not in vain and will not be wasted, but will be used as instruments of the vine dresser to produce even more good fruit in our lives. Apostle Paul has the same idea in Romans chapter 5. He says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. How about another biblical example of God's pruning through trial? 2 Corinthians 1. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You see what happened? Paul went through incredible affliction. He says, they were so burdened beyond their strength, that they despaired of life itself. The shadow of death was hanging over them. Now, again, this might seem cruel and and harsh that God would permit such such an intense experience. But that's not how Paul sees it. Paul, looking back, recognizes the gracious pruning of God. He says... But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. God put them in a situation to prune them, to teach them to rely not on themselves, but on God who raises the dead. And Paul receives through that experience, an increase of faith and hope and confidence in the power of God. Paul now has a greater degree of boldness in his trust and hope in God's delivering power. Another classic biblical example of pruning is Paul's thorn in the flesh. It was some sort of affliction that the Lord brought into Paul's life. And and why did God do this? He says in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from being conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, notice here, the pruning of God is not in response to past sin. The purpose of this, actually, is protection from future sin. He says, to keep me from being conceited, God did this. Now, let me challenge you here. Is that worth it? Is suffering worth being less conceited? Is suffering worth a greater yield of the fruit of humility? Or... Do you say, I'd rather be arrogant and suffer less, thank you very much? If so, if that's what you say, what you're really saying is that suffering less is worth more than the fruit of humility, which leads to seeing and savoring and enjoying Jesus Christ to a degree that you wouldn't have otherwise. And and folks, as long as we have that attitude… We will never be able to obey the Bible when it tells us to rejoice in the midst of trials. We'll never have hope. We will instead always be angry and afraid and in despair in our trials without hope. But what was Paul's response to his suffering, his thorn? Was it anger? What, was it shaking his fist at God saying, get off my back, God. am sick of your pruning. No. His response to the thorn in the flesh was the kind of response James told us to have, namely joy. And so Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He is glad of his weakness, not because he's a sadist, but because the weakness, the affliction, is the pathway to increased humility and leads to knowing and experiencing the glory and the power of Christ even more. And so, to Paul, the affliction, however unpleasant it was, was worth it because of what he knew he was getting out of it. Another biblical example of pruning is uh, Hebrews chapter 12. And in Hebrews 12, uh, it, it talks about God's discipline and the word for discipline in the Greek is, is very broad. Uh, yes, it includes a fatherly kind of discipline in response to sin, but it also includes instruction, it includes training, it includes protection from future sin and setting a course for righteous living. But regardless of, of the type of discipline, the author of Hebrews tells us the aim of such discipline. And so, he writes in Hebrews twelve eleven: For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit, there's the word, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And pruning, by the way, is not only good for us, God prunes us to equip us to be a better minister to others. We see this talked about in Second Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. There are some suffering saints in this room this morning. I know some of your stories, some of, the, some of your heartaches and pains and challenges and difficulties. And I truly believe that God has incredible plans of fruitfulness and incredible plans of impact for you, because God is making you more fit for His service and is making something incredibly beautiful out of you through the pruning. One of my heroes of the faith is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Few people have experienced such fruitfulness in life and, and, and in ministry as, as Spurgeon, But he also suffered from extreme physical infirmities and pain throughout his whole life. And and even worse, Spurgeon battled on and off with very significant, intense depression. Battled it throughout his whole life. And yet, listen to what the Prince of Preachers had to say about those dark nights of the soul. Spurgeon writes, and I quote, This depression comes over me. Whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry, the cloud is black before it breaks and overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benison. So have far better men found it. The scouring of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. Spurgeon goes on to say, "'My witness is that those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure a secret chastening or to carry a peculiar cross, lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil.'" They speak all the more sweetly of His faithfulness and are the more firmly established in His love. Such mature men as some elderly preachers are could scarcely have been produced if they had not been first emptied from vessel to vessel and made to see their own emptiness and and the vanity of all things round about them. And finally, he writes, Glory be to God for the furnace, the hammer, and the file. Heaven shall be all the fuller of bliss because we have been filled with anguish here below and earth shall be better tilled because of our training in the school of adversity. Another one of my heroes in the faith is uh, the missionary Jim Elliott who was martyred in Ecuador in the 50s. In some ways, his wife Elizabeth is even more of a hero. While, While it's great a great and wonderful thing to sacrifice your life on the mission field through your faithful service to Christ. It's also an amazing thing to see the faith of people who have lost those loved ones and must by faith continue on without them. Elizabeth wrote this, when I stood by my shortwave radio in the jungle of Ecuador in 1956 and heard that my husband was missing." God brought to my mind the words of the prophet Isaiah, When thou passeth through the waters, I will be with thee. You can imagine that my response was not terribly spiritual. I was saying, But Lord, you're with me all the time. What I want is Jim. I want my husband. Five days later, I knew that Jim was dead, and God's presence with me was not Jim's presence. Jim's absence thrust me, forced me, hurried me to God, my only hope, my only refuge, and I learned in that experience who God is, who He is in a way that I could never have known otherwise. She goes on to write, and so I can say to you that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. The deepest things that I've learned in my own life have come from the deepest sufferings, and out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. Elizabeth's experience exemplifies what the Apostle Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, where he writes, "'In this you rejoice.'" Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of scriptures about this, aren't there? I've just scratched the surface. And the reason why there's so many scriptures that touch on this topic is because we need reminders. We need hope because often our response to trials and my response to trials is anything but hope. Often it's anger. Often we might respond with suspicion, mistrust towards God, despair. Some of you are going through intense pruning right now, and you're feeling the blade of the vine dresser Intense trial and difficulty, financial hardship, physical affliction, relational turmoil. Some of you are thinking, all the above and more. And maybe you're tempted to think that your suffering is a waste. And some of you might even wonder if God is trying to destroy you because you feel like you just can't bear it anymore. And yet you have the repeated encouragement and assurance from the Scriptures that your suffering is not in vain. Nothing is wasted in the hands of the skillful and loving vine dresser who only seeks the good of the branches, actively working in your trial to help you to yield even more fruit that will benefit not only you but those around you and will ultimately bring Him glory. So let's together commit ourselves... As a church, to submitting to the good work of the vine dresser and trusting in his hand, asking God to give us a hopeful, confident expectation in his loving care of us, even in the times of pruning, especially in the times of pruning. We don't doubt God's care for us when things are going great. It is through the providence of God that we're about to enter into a time of communion. Because we could respond to Jesus' words about pruning with dismissal. We could say, well, that's easy for Jesus to say. He didn't have to experience this kind of tough pruning. And if you think that, you couldn't be more mistaken. Because as Jesus is talking with His disciples about pruning and fruit-bearing, Jesus knows that in just a few hours, He Himself will endure the pain of the Father's pruning work in His own life, in His suffering and crucifixion. Now, unlike you and me, the Father's pruning of Jesus was not because Jesus lacked love and patience and kindness. It wasn't to help Jesus grow. Uh, Jesus already perfectly bore righteous fruit, but similar to us… The purpose of Jesus' pruning was so that in the end, He would bear even more fruit. Jesus Himself foresaw this in John chapter 12. He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus didn't lack righteousness, but we did. And due to our lack of righteousness, we were indeed dead, fruitless branches suited for nothing but to be gathered up and thrown into the fires of hell because the wages of sin is death. the only way you and I can be saved from death is to have another who has no guilt on his own die in our place. And so, Jesus died on the cross, and to the eyes of some, that seemed harsh. That seemed like a waste and it seemed like like God was needlessly forsaking His Son. But Jesus trusted the pruning work of His Father, and He knew that what would happen on the cross would not be a waste nor an ultimate forsaking of Himself. Jesus knew the Father was not only in control, but He knew the Father was good and trustworthy and does what is right and good and beneficial for his own every time. And that's exactly why the author of Hebrews says that Jesus for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame. Jesus knew on the other side of the pruning there would be much fruit. And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5:21 for our sake He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because Jesus knew no sin, he did not stay dead, but conquered the grave and has been risen to newness of life. He is like a seed that fell into the ground and died and now has burst forth from the earth like a living vine pulsating with life. And all who believe in Jesus receive full forgiveness for their sins. They become attached to the vine. And now, with Jesus' life coming from Himself and into us, the branches, He bears much fruit through you and through me and through millions of branches all over the world who are finding their life in Christ. And Jesus' death was not only the sign of our forgiveness, it's also the proof that in our deepest, affliction and trials, that God will give us everything we need to sustain us in the affliction. And what's more, he will even turn those afflictions around to serve and benefit us. That's exactly why Paul wrote, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God offering up His only Son, God turning Jesus over to experience affliction and suffering greater than, than, suffering that surpasses the worst of anything that any of us have gone through, that is the sign that God is for you. He will provide you with everything you need, and it's the sign that nothing will separate you from His love.